Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all uh, this morning to worship uh, with you uh, today. We hope you are blessed uh, this morning. It's very, very good to be with you and to worship the Lord our God. If you would now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This morning we are going to consider Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, uh, 12 through 16. We'd like to begin the reading in verse 8, however. So we'll begin the reading in verse 8, and the focus of the sermon will be on verses 12 uh, through 16. Beloved, before we hear God's word, if you would join your hearts together with me in prayer, please pray with me. Our great God in heaven, the creator of all things and the redeemer of your people, we praise you, O God, and we are in awe and we are humbled by the fact that rank on rank, the heavenly host, praise you day and night. And this same God who receives everlasting and persistent praise from glorious beings such as these has chosen to reveal himself to a lowly people such as us. And so we thank you, O Father, that you speak to us in the words of Holy Scripture, that the voice of Jesus Christ goes out in the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would give your people ears to receive this word and be changed by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Beloved, this is the word of God. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. The last thing that we heard from Paul was him stating that he wanted to attain the resurrection from the dead. For believers, at the resurrection of the dead, or at the resurrection from the dead, when Jesus returns, we will be made perfect in body and soul. We will then be complete. The work of God that was spoken of earlier in chapter 2, that God works in us, that work will come to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Then... Our fight against sin and our fight against the temptations of the devil will be over forever. We might call that day or that state when Jesus comes again the finish line for Christians. Now, of course, with this in mind, we may die before then. If we die before Jesus comes at our death, then 
would be a kind of finish line for us as Christians living in this age. Our souls would be perfected at that moment and we would go to be with Christ in our souls, which again Paul describes as far better than living here. At that moment, we would gain Christ in our soul in a way that we have never known before, in fully sanctified souls. And the death, at death, again, the souls of, the, of believers are made perfect. But that, which is a kind of finish line, if you can think of it that way, is not the ultimate, or ultimately not the finish line for Christians. In the, in that last, in the last several verses of this chapter, Paul had given a doctrinal defense of the gospel. And he did this by explaining to the Philippians how he thought as a Christian, how he thought as a follower of Christ. By doing that, he showed what benefits believers have in Christ through faith in Christ alone. And so from Paul's perspective, he says, this is what I have in Christ. This is how I think in Christ. And these are my desires in Christ. That's what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. He has gained Christ by faith, by letting go of the confidence in the flesh that he clung to so so desperately before he was converted. And by laying hold of Christ by faith, he has gained Christ. Paul gained Christ in all that Christ had done and all that Christ was for him. In Christ, Paul had a righteousness from God. In Christ, he desired to be made more like Christ in his death. He wanted to be conformed into Christ's death in this life. This, all of this re- results from his union with Christ. These benefits flow from Christ to Paul, to every believer in every generation. In Christ, Paul wanted to know him. He wanted to know Christ more in his sufferings and through suffering come to know more and more of the power of Christ's resurrection. And finally, in Christ, Paul says that the final objective was resurrection glory with Christ when he comes again. Something, friends, that is secured for us by virtue of Christ's own resurrection from the dead. That is the finish line. That is where it ends and where a new life begins, a new age, which really has already begun. That is the finish line for the believer. To know more and more of the power of Christ's resurrection in this life is to understand that by that same power we will be raised. Our resurrection glory is not probable for the believer. It is certain. And then we come to know more of that in this life. But it doesn't change the fact that it's certain. You will be raised from the dead. You will be given glorified bodies at the end. Well, Paul here in this last section of the chapter, he still keeps the same perspective. He wanted the Philippians to learn from him, to think about what he boasted in Christ so that they too might boast in those same things. He wanted them to think about how he personally thought about salvation in Christ and how he thought about the Christian life. Now, Paul wanted them to do this not because Paul thought too highly of himself. He did not put confidence in the flesh anymore. He did not boast in himself. He boasted in Jesus Christ. And so he wasn't placing himself before believers 
as a model for them to emulate, as a way in which to think for themselves. He didn't do that because he was puffed up. Paul did this because he clung to the truth, and he lived by the truth. That is what he wanted believers to see, to see the truth of what it means to be a Christian and the truth of what it means to live as a Christian. He refers to this as what we have obtained and what we have attained in verse 16. We have, as Christians, attained the truth. And we live out of that truth. That truth influences how we live. That is what Paul wanted the believers to know and to to imitate in him, to cling to the truth. Because there would be others who would bring untruth. That was what we looked at in the beginning of this chapter. The Judaizers, they were false teachers. He warned the church about them. And so he says to them directly later in the next section, he says, join in imitating me. False teachers and hypocrites would attempt to draw the eyes of believers off of the truth so as to deceive. And Paul, in response to that, knowing that, says, no, look at me. Listen to what I'm saying. Imitate my thinking, my behavior. Imitate what I do because it's proper. It's a proper way to think. It's a proper way to live for the Christian. It is Christ himself working in me and through my teaching. And so listen to me. Imitate me. That's where Paul is coming from. And so it's a place of humility, actually. He recognizes that God is at work in him. And he wants the Philippians to see that and to reflect that in their own lives. And so still, from Paul's perspective, when he thinks about the finish line, the resurrection from the dead... When he thinks about his own life in Christ presently, what is his judgment? What does he think about his own life? He says, I have not made it. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm not done. I haven't finished. I have not crossed the finish line. Paul here was using racing, a racing metaphor when he talks about straining forward or forgetting what is behind and pressing on to a goal, a prize. He's racing, running towards a prize, running toward that finish line, a prize to be had at the end, at the end of the race. Now, the Philippians may have thought a certain way here, and Paul may have been privy to the something of the way in which the Philippians had thought. We might think this way as well at times as Christians. We could look at all that Paul had said up until this point, the apostle, and know that this is a man who was in chains for the gospel. We may never experience something like this. Instead of thinking about how and when he might be released, he continued to serve the church. He thought about what the church needed, not what he needed, and so he wrote this letter, for example. He thought about their needs while he was in prison. And so he certainly spent his time in confinement, not complaining, but as we see in this letter, rejoicing. He's full of joy, even while in chains for the gospel. He's rejoicing as he thought about all that Christ was to him and all that Christ had given to him. And so we might look at all of this and think, the apostle, he's, he's arrived. He's made it. He is near perfect. He's complete. I mean, I want to think like this. I want to be like Paul. I'm not there yet, but he's very close. Maybe even done. Or maybe we're thinking more negatively. 
Maybe there were some in the Philippian church, maybe we think this way at times as well, that Paul was aware of, who thought that they had arrived at perfection. They had crossed a kind of finish line. And so thinking that they were done, they turn around and they look at the other racers and they look down on them. They have an air of superiority about them. I've made it. You haven't. Sorry about you. Maybe that was present in this church. They considered themselves perfect, and so they, per- they puffed themselves up against other Christians. Now, Paul wanted to cut the heart out of that thinking, too. He wanted to cut the heart out of the false doctrine the Judaizers would want to impose upon them, which was a works righteousness, a salvation by works. He, he cut the heart out of that thinking by his doctrinal defense in the previous verses that we've been looking at. So he cut, uprooted that untruth. Now he wants to uproot this other untruth. He wants to root out a perfectionist attitude or perfectionist thinking from the church. And so he makes it clear here. For him, I have not obtained this. I am not done. I have not yet reached the finish line. I am not perfect. I do not consider, I do not think that I have made it my own. I have not made it there, and I don't think that I have made it there. That's what Paul says. Now, if we go back to the racing metaphor, Paul says essentially this. I'm still running. I'm still running the race. The race, my race, is not over yet. My heart is pounding. My breathing is heavy. My chest hurts. My legs are moving. My muscles strain. They burn. They contract. They push my body forward. My feet pound the ground. I'm still running the race. I'm not done. Paul emphasizes the fact that he had not yet reached his goal by doing two things here. First, we've already looked at, he just flat out says it. I'm not finished. The resurrection of the dead, perfection in body and soul is still future for me. Even as I write this letter from prison with all my accolades as an apostle, resurrection from the dead, perfect body, perfect soul, a glorified state with Christ forever is still future. I'm not there yet. And so he talks about what lies ahead. It hasn't happened yet. So that's the negative aspect. I haven't yet done that. Secondly, he emphasizes this fact by positively saying uh, or positively speaking what is happening now. That is, what does Paul actually do? If he hasn't finished, what is he doing now? Verse 13, but one thing I do. You see what he's doing there. What does he do? Well, Paul says he strains forward. He says, I press on. I pursue this. I hunt this thing down. Now, this word that is translated uh, press on, it is a form of the same word that was translated persecutor of the church in verse 6. And Paul was talking about himself before he was confronted by Christ on the Damascus Road. What did he do? He persecuted the church. He hunted down Christians. He ran after them to throw them in chains and to even give his approval to their deaths if need be. That was him before, but now in Christ, Paul still is hunting something down. But it's something altogether different, the resurrection from the dead. That's what he's chasing after. 
That's what he's going toward. He's pursuing that. He's chasing it down. He's hunting after it. In several different ways, Paul then says that he reaches out towards the prize, the finish line. I press on. I make it my own. I strain forward. In order to strain forward, one has to forget what is behind you. For Paul, that may have been his sorrow over his former way of life. He carried that with him. He gave approval to the execution of Christians, those who belong to the way, those who were part of the body of Christ, which he was now a part of. Do you not think he still remembered that? He did. He tells us in Romans chapter 7 that he's very conscious of all the ways in which he fails as a Christian. He says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Wretched man that I am. And so certainly forgetting what lies behind does not mean that you block it out of your mind entirely. Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't pretend as though his history wasn't actually a real history. He just explained it to us in chapter 3. He told us about his history. And he gave several testimonies about his history in the book of Acts. And he even refers to it in other letters. And so these are memories for him, for sure, this is history, but this is real history. And Paul doesn't discount what happened before he came into contact with Jesus Christ, nor does he discount his struggle, his present struggle with sin. And so forgetting what lies behind is not to say that we should act as if those things never happened. That's not humility. That's pride actually welling up, perhaps because we don't want to deal with the consequences of what we've done in the past. In fact, Paul remembered very very well what he was like before Christ saved him. Forgetting what lies behind rather means that you don't let what is behind you affect or influence the way in which you strain forward towards what is ahead. A runner who is not happy about how he ran the first quarter mile of the race begins to dwell on that too much, what will he do? Well, he thinks he's already lost the race because of what has happened before. That runner will essentially stop straining forward. He will slow down, maybe even give up. Paul says, no, I forget the past. I strain forward towards the future. That's where we're all headed, friends. Now, all this language about straining forward, pressing on, making it his own, means, again, that he has not yet reached the finish line. He has not yet arrived. He is not yet done or complete. He goes on to say that mature Christians think this way. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And so in Paul's mind, Christians who have an air of superiority about themselves, thinking that they are perfect, that they are complete, and they look down on other Christians, Those Christians, Paul says, are immature in their thinking. They reveal their immaturity by thinking themselves to be perfect, by thinking themselves to be complete. Let those of us who are mature in the faith think this way, have a humility like this, understand that none of us are done, none of us are complete. If you want to bring out the faults and the sins in your neighbor, let's... Let's start to put on the table your own sins, our own faults, our own failures. 
Let's do some weighing and measuring then. None of us want to do that, do we? I don't. None of us are done. The Apostle Paul wasn't done. It's mature to think this way. If you think that you are done, if you think on some level that you are made perfect, you're thinking like a spiritual child. That is what Paul says here. If you think that in any way your race towards holiness is done, it's not done. There's one finish line. We're not there yet. Now, Paul doesn't try to apply this to every conceivable situation here. He simply says with confidence, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. God is at work in you. Think about these things. He'll show you. Now, lastly, if we think about a race from the human perspective, from the human perspective, what happens in a race? The runner wills himself on. He makes himself go. There's Ultimately, there's nothing at the end of the race that is forcing him to finish. Now, certainly, he's thinking about the prize. He wants to finish first. He wants to finish in the top three. Maybe that's compelling him on. Maybe it's the crowd, his teammates. They're putting pressure on that person to to continue the race. But those things in and of themselves, they don't force him to finish. They don't force he or she, the racer, to finish the race. They could actually stop at any time. This, even with all the influences, the outside influences around a human runner, they could stop. They could decide to not finish the race. Well, is it this way with Christians in the race that we're on? Is it possible that the race would get too hard for us, too long, that we ultimately walk away from Christ? Is that a true possibility? Now, this question, of course, is for true believers. There is such a thing as hypocrites who never really were in the race in the first place, and they fall off because they were never really truly running. But for true believers in Christ, you and I, is this possible? Is it possible that we might not finish? That we might wake up one day and think, the race is too long, it's too hard, my muscles hurt, I'm done. Is this possible? Well, Paul says, Paul reveals to us here and he shows us very clearly that the answer is no. Paul runs for sure. He strains. And this is something that he does in the power of the Spirit. And this is something that Paul freely chooses to do every day of his life, every day that he lived. Verse 13, one thing I do. Paul did this. No no one else did this for him. So he does this for sure in the power of the Spirit. But what is the ground? What's the foundation upon which he wills to run? What keeps him going ultimately? He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And he also speaks of running towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what does this all mean? Well, the first thing is clear, friends. Verse 12, Paul belongs to Jesus. This is why he runs. He was running after people who belonged to Jesus before Christ sovereignly saved him. Paul belongs to Jesus, and he belongs to Jesus because Jesus made the first move and called Paul to himself. Jesus made me his own. Jesus chose in the beginning, from eternity, to make me his own at a certain point in time. That is to say, Jesus, as God, out of his free grace, sovereignly poured his love into Paul 
and took possession of Paul's heart, mind, soul, and body and saved him. That's why he runs. We love, we run, because he first loved us, as the Apostle John says. Well, how did, Je- how did Jesus do this? Well, from heaven, he called Paul to himself. We, we see testimony of this in the book of Acts. Paul is running after Christians, and, appear, and there appears Jesus, and he speaks to Paul from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At that point, Paul had been running toward destruction. But on the road to Damascus, when Jesus called him, he ran into a brick wall. He was stopped dead in his tracks. And that wall was God's voice from heaven, God calling him from heaven, putting a stop to his murderous rage and setting him on a different path, giving him a new heart and sovereignly calling him to run a different race altogether. Did Paul do that? Ultimately, no. It was God who did that. Jesus made me his own. There was an upward call of God that made Paul belong to Christ. At that moment, Jesus made Paul his own and turned him around and caused, to run, start, caused Paul to start running toward not destruction, but toward resurrection glory. That's what Jesus did with him, and that's what he has done with us. And so this upward call of God, friends, I think, it's not so much a directional thing that we look up as we run. And certainly we should. God is in heaven. We are to think about the things that are above. Our prize is heavenly, for sure, eternal life. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul would say in just a few sentences after this. Upward, though, is not so much directional as it has to do with the origin of the call. This is the call of God in Christ Jesus from heaven to you, to us. This call comes from God in heaven to a people on earth who were not looking for him, who were not looking to him. It did not originate with you, in other words, this call. Your desire to run, your desire to cross the finish line, it did not originate with you. Jesus made you his own. Therefore, you run, and you don't stop running until the end. Now listen to how Paul describes this calling in Galatians chapter 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace... God chooses, God calls, and we respond because of what God has done. God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul in order that Paul might preach. This is why he runs. Friends, when we were running away from God, God from heaven ran after us, and he called us to himself. Jesus made us his own, and he caused us to start running toward him and toward resurrection glory. And he continually does this, friends. Jesus' call, this upward call, fuels your running. You can't run without it. It fuels your running. He sovereignly compels you to strain forward. He's leading you toward him. He's causing you to press on, leading you toward the finish line. And he won't let you stop. He won't let us stop. At the same time, though, friends, as Paul, as Paul says here, we must run. Run. Continue to run. 
We must think like Paul at every stage of our lives. I have not finished. I'm not yet done. And we must act like Paul and always straining forward. This is what the call is upon the Christians. Now, beloved, remember this. Because Christ has made you his own, you will run. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Let's pray together, friends.